KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. I guess if you're having a legacy part of your career, it's probably good to be starring the number one box office hit based on a movie of 50 years ago and then to be starring in the box office smash of a play that was staged 62 years ago. If you were that person, you would happen to be the Emmy-winning, Grammy-winning, Tony-winning, Oscar-nominated star of Pearly Victorious, a non-confronted romp through the cotton patch or the exorcist believer, I am, of course, talking to Leslie Odom Jr., who's kind enough to listen to that lengthy introduction and sit here for this show. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Really, thank you. My pleasure, sir. Thank you for making time. I appreciate it. And I was lucky enough to be there for your opening night of Pearly. Uh, to see that show, actually, something came to mind for me uh, in, in the way you approach the character, which is, you know how to succeed when the phone is ringing. What about when the phone's not ringing? Yeah. That's a line from your book. It was my father-in-law. My father-in-law gave me that that was the best piece of advice I'd ever been given in my life at that time. And it's funny because I thought about the way that character kind of occupies himself. He's kind of constantly acting as if the phone is about to ring. I mean, for him, he's generating <laughs> a, a, a kind of momentum in his life. And, and then it's funny because... Having read that book and then seeing you do so many things, seeing you in One Night in Miami, you know, during those lulls in Sam Cooke's life, I mean, that piece of advice actually sort of seems to live in a lot of the characters that you play. You know, I'm, yeah, I've never thought about it like that, but I, it's pro- what he was giving me was, uh, I think, something that a lot of successful people already know. I didn't, but he was, he was hipping me to game at that that lunch we were having over chicken pot pie at Marie Callender's. And I was you know, just really at a loss, you know, just trying to figure out how to work with more consistency. That it, you, we should tell your listeners, that was about a little over a decade now in my career, I was looking to quit. And I was really just um, struggling with the lack of consistency and the lack of... Um, I just couldn't count on anything in my profession and and it was hard to count on things in my life. And so anyway, he gave me that great piece of advice. And I uh, thank God, really, because of that lunch, I haven't stopped working really in the last 12 years. But that's also a piece of philosophy that can really apply to characters. And again, I'm just thinking about these two figures because they really, in, in a lot of ways, even exist in the same period of time, Sam Cooke and Pearly Victorious, don't they? I mean, Pearly is, um, Mr. Davis wrote an essay about what writing and performing the role meant to him and what it did for him. He wrote that it, Pearly made a man out of him, which is, which is saying something. Pearly is called a boy a couple times in our text. Anybody who grew up in the rural South in the 60s knows something about that. And so, yeah, for for a character, for a piece of work to have that kind of uh, liberating power, to be able to manumit Mr. Davis and then 62 years later for me to find 
some of that freedom still waiting there for me as well is a testament to a life well lived. I think, you know, I'm so grateful to Mr. Davis for, for giving us this, this piece of art. And we're talking about determination with my guest, Leslie Odom Jr., who's the star of Pearly Victorious and Non-Confederate Romp Through the Cotton Patch, uh, directed by Kenny Land. It's on uh, it's, it's the Music Box Theater on Broadway. You can also show KCRW.com slash The Treatment. But I do want to ask you about that, that determination, because I mentioned it in Sam Cooke. We can certainly see, can, and David Chase even talked about it a little bit when he was here talking about The Many Saints of Newark. And so often you find a way to play determination in people. And again, for Pearlie, it's an interesting, almost like a postmodern take on it. I'm sure you could even find on YouTube Gone Other Days, which is the film version of the play with the original That's cast. Right. And when I was involved with the LA Film Festival, 20 years ago, I actually had them find a 16 millimeter print of it and show it. Because I think it's an important wow. piece of work to see. And it was a really beat down 16 millimeter print that the sound would go in and out of. But just to see... Ossie Davis and Ruby D, and you can you can feel the chemistry between them in the film, and Alan Alda and Sorrel Book and Godfrey Cambridge. I mean, and I have to say, watching this show made me feel what it must have been like seeing that same group of people at those stages in their careers, because this group of actors on stage with you is just phenomenal. Incredible, right? We have Kara um, Young has stepped into the the role made famous by Ms. D. Kara's a two-time Tony Award-nominated actress. We're hoping she's after never done this, anything like this before, though. Like never. Oh, we're hoping after this transcendent performance, she's going to be a, a Tony-winning actress in you know what is sure to be um, one of the performances of the season, if not the performance of the season. She's just a revelation. And Billy Eugene Jones really reinventing this this archetype, you know, that, uh, that Mr. <laughs> Davis, yeah, Mr. Davis is, you know, it's subversive, the humor in this piece. It's almost, you know, it feels like something that um, that Jordan Peele might write or that Boots Riley might get down with, you know, it's such, it's a wicked sense of humor and wit but even, that he has. But even connects to something like Day of Absence, those kinds of shows from the Negro Ensemble right. Theater that were about subverting archetype and basically dealing with the ways that those, that Often black actors are using those archetypes to comment figuratively yes, sir. In, in performance. And, and and he does that here in this show, doesn't it? You're so right. And you know, Billy, Billy had one of the toughest roles because that's um that's a hard role for a for a modern actor, contemporary actor to to stomach and uh to present. There's there, there's a lot about these symbols and tropes that that are painful. And, you know, we've had 62 more years to see them and be held down by them. And some of this we're tired of. And so it was it was tricky for Billy in the rehearsal process to find his way through. But I mean, I really think he cracked the code for the modern audience. And they are just, it's a riot. It really is a romp. You know, the thing about the title, the non-Confederate romp through the cotton patch, when Mr. Davis first presented this play 62 years ago, that was the subtitle that he wanted. That that came from him, but he thought it was too long. Uh, he's like, ah, nobody's really going to get that. And this the show premiered on Broadway the same year as How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, this other long title. And so he could, you know, he would have been right on trend but um, and how to succeed won the Pulitzer that year. Pearly Victorious was 
a finalist for the Pulitzer, uh, but bringing that subtitle back, you know, emphasis on the romp. It is such a joyful experience. We're having such a wonderful time at the music box, really laughing together, saying these outrageous things with our whole chest. There's a healing in that. And when we get to, when we finally do get to the pathos, when we get to the reason why Mr. Davis has gathered us all there in the theater, you know, you can really feel the kind of collective exhale. People leave this theater feeling closer to their neighbor than they did when they came in. We should say that when your character, when Pearlie enters, and he, we should say he's a character who presents as a savior, but also presents as a, a hustler, but he's a hustler who believes if there is such a thing. I mean, he has faith. It's an article of faith for him. And, and that's why I keep getting at determination, because it's almost he's going to will this thing into being. And there's a gasp when this character comes in, because especially seeing it with that crowd, which was easily divided, white audiences aren't quite sure what to make of it. And they're waiting to, to understand that. I love that experience. You know, these these experiences are really rare on Broadway. We were so grateful for those, for the, you know, spate of fabulous reviews that we got. I, I try not to put too much, too much credence in, in reviews. But as a producer, this is my first time around as one of the producers of the show. I can tell you what an effect it had on the box office the next day. I mean, business quadrupled, quintupled when we got that that critics pick from the New York Times and just across the board, the love letters for Mr. Davis's writing and for this tremendous company. But yeah, the the experience is different. White audiences have a slightly different experience watching the show than Black audiences. My six-year-old has seen the show three times. A child has a different experience than uh, someone of my generation. My parents, my grandparents would have a, a different experience watching it than I have. So these kinds of shows are very rare. Hamilton was this kind of show too, I have to say. You know, a show that, you know, that really people got it on, on whatever level they received it on, and but it was well-received and sort of welcomed at whatever place you were and whatever perspective you had. And Hamilton did this wonderful thing where it, it set a table for us. I think Mr. Davis does the same thing as Lin-Manuel. This place sets a table for people of different backgrounds to, to gather around. They experience it. They have this experience watching the show. And then what we talk about after the curtain comes down, how that conversation continues is up to us. I was certainly going to bring up Hamilton as well, because in the early days of those shows, like in the early days of this show, before the reviews, and lucky enough to be able to catch these things early on, it's fascinating to watch with audiences who haven't been sort of primed for it. Right. So there's a, there's a really honest reaction and knowing the right. play and knowing the material, just first of all, it's just seeing it and the way that Kenny Leon chose to open it by really putting a frame around it, but still a frame that if you don't, that only makes sense if you know the material. If you do not, it's a series of surprises. Even black audiences a little bit are, wait a second, this is how satirical is this but it's, it's fascinating to watch for me all the levels of people reacting to it i have to tell you my head was kind of on a swivel what happens and you know this too is that there are laughs that will come like two minutes after a piece oh it's okay so it's it's an, it's an astonishing experience to have 
Oh, I love that you said that. What a review. What a review. I'll take that. We need to put, we're going to put that on the front of the theater. Um, yeah, if you only warn people away, please, by all means, put my name out there. But it's an astonishing thing to see. And having seen you in this circumstance a couple of times, what's it like to have that same kind of lightning revisited for you where people are just kind of, huh? I mean, that must be one of the reasons you want to do this, isn't it? It's so satisfying. You know, all, all I really do is follow my gut. The show that brought me to the theater was a show called Rent. I was 13 years old when I encountered this show. And um, it really introduced me to the trifecta in this entertainment field. You know, I think the trifecta is when something is artistically fulfilling, culturally relevant, and commercially successful. Uh, you're really lucky if you get one or two out of the three of those things at any given moment. But to get all three is a very, very rare, special thing. So uh, Rent certainly was that. Hamilton was that. And Pearly Victorious, after those reviews, thank goodness, looks like it might uh, fall in the, in the same category. So no, it's a wonderful thing whenever, um, whenever the outside world ends up mirroring what's happening within you is a wonderful thing. There's a lot of times when I read some piece of material. I I I go see some movie that that just rocks my world, and I think though this is going to be the biggest thing, the greatest thing since sliced bread. And you know, other people they ain't really feeling it like that. So it's um just a deeply satisfying thing when something that I think is the jump off uh, finds its way into the hearts of many. We will take a break. Many of us are lucky if we get to see this trifecta once in our lives. My guest, Leslie Odom Jr., has gotten started twice. This current iteration of this is <laughs> Pearly Victorious, a non-Confederate romp through the cotton patch. I love saying that title. It's the treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. He's still here. He hasn't left yet to go do another insanely successful piece of work. My guest is Leslie Odom Jr. He is the Tony Grammy Emmy winning star of the new revival of Pearly Victorious at the Musa Box Theater. You can also hear the show at KCRW.com slash The Treatment. As an actor, and, and you actually even get at some of this in the book, the idea of sort of being able to experience things as they're happening and not get too far ahead of them. When you read Pearly for the first time, before you talked to... Kenny about it. I'm, I'm wondering how you felt about it, because on the page, you can see the irony in it, but you can also feel the traps. I wonder when you saw it, you go, well, how do we, how do we let the audience know what to expect without giving the show away? Kenny and I both were aligned that we, we knew we needed the best actors around. We needed smart actors. We knew for Gitlow, most especially in our production played by the brilliant Billy Eugene Jones, who was um, who I had seen in the Pulitzer Prize winning Fat Ham the previous season. I saw him at the public and I saw him on Broadway playing those two roles just in fabulous form and fashion. We needed somebody like that. Kenny said, we need somebody, we need like a Sam Jackson. You know, what Sam did in Django uh, was so brilliant and wise. But what Sam does in Django is he, I mean, I think that's like one of the most novel sort of takes on that character, that kind of character is he, he invites you to hate the character. 
he basically dares you to not hate the character, as a matter of fact. And what you're talking about, because I, I thought about it too in, in watching this, it's so rare to get that kind of character written um, with a level of self-awareness or portrayed with a level of self-awareness. And and you certainly have an eye for this that I don't, because having seen Billy in fact, I would never have thought those are such stylized turns. And I realized, oh, this has to be stylized as well, doesn't it? That's right. No, we just we just knew we needed a, a a smart actor. Those things when you're watching, the the good actors make it look easy. The good actors make it look like that. Oh, this just oh that's kind of you know that's kind of like he always is. You know, even if people <laughs> people say that about people like, you know, Tom Cruise. I mean, Tom Cruise is brilliant. You know, like breathtaking. You know, he's like a he's like a Charlie Chaplin. You know, just a really special once in a generation kind of talent movie star and billy uh billy is extraordinary billy and kenny have actually worked together if you can believe it i mean something like billy's lost count billy was in soldiers play billy understudied p diddy in the in kenny's broadway debut raising the sun yeah billy was was p diddy's understudy so he met his he met his his wife in that show they were both the understudies for the leads so yeah they've worked together a ton and so kenny knew that you know, Billy could get down and and I saw him play those two roles so stunningly. And I was like, you know, I learned that from Lynn, you know, that when I watched the way that Lynn and Tommy cast Hamilton, that Lynn, Lynn was the lead through and through. The show was called Hamilton. Lynn played Hamilton. Lynn wrote and started Hamilton. But he did not, you know, he was not trying to seem taller by asking everybody else to walk on their knees. Lynn cast right alongside him. He cast David Diggs and Philip Sue and Akirete Onaudawan and Anthony Ramos and me and Renee Elise Goldsberry. I mean, you know, giants. I mean, real people who can get down. And Lynn said, bring it. Bring what you have. And because we're going to make each other better, we're going to make the show better. That's what a championship team is like. A championship team is filled with people who also know how to assist, who also know how to help a team win. And so, yeah, we wanted a great team and we got that with this. It's the treatment. My guess is the skill with the metaphors he is on the stage is Leslie Odom Jr. He is starring in Pearly Victorious at the Musebox Theater on Broadway. You can also hear the show at ksjw.com slash the treatment. It's so funny, too, because talking about Hamilton versus Pearly, I should say Pearly Victorious, not confused with the musical. But it's funny because what Hamilton was about in those moments of discovery, just seeing that cast come out and going, what are they doing? Huh? Was about hope. We're in a different era now. And with Pearly Victorious going out in this era, and there are gestures in this play that I'm not going to give away by talking about them, that is certainly about the last two years that we've lived in, if not the last four. Talk about what it's like to do a play about this kind of world, this material now. That comes with with traps too, doesn't it? I mean, it's just a great gift. As I look at, What's happening in uh, Israel and on the Gaza Strip and in Ukraine? I can so clearly see the role, the holy calling of the artist, man, 
do I look forward to the peace that somebody that is far more skilled than I, somebody who really understands what's happening over there, that sets down, maybe after they see Pearly Victorious, you know, they're going to they're gonna sit down and put pen to paper and enlighten us on how to see our way through these conflicts and to love each other better. You know, that's what Mr. Davis did. You know, he took his experiences growing up on that farm in Georgia uh, in the segregated South, deeply segregated South. And um, he wrote what what my co-star, my leading lady, Carrie Young, calls the gospel of humanity. Uh, And so, yeah, there's a holy calling for artists to help us process these incredibly complicated emotions and impossible situations. And so there's a, there's a great need for, for the humanities right now, for novels and poetry and theater and music and opera and dance. Gosh, as you're saying these things, I mean, even as stratified as the world was and, and, and how tough things were in 1961, it was still also a time for hope. You know, there was uh, Dr. King, there was President Kennedy, there was hope about where the civil rights movement would take us. And then when Hamilton went up, it's a period where we wanted to have expectations exploded on the stage. And it's a thrill to see actors of color and women doing things that we would only see in community theater or in colleges. To see that kind of thing on the Broadway stage was Broadway finally caught up with the world. And for this kind of period of almost active recidivism that we have now, there are people who can can come see Pearly and just laugh at it on the surface, which is a chilling prospect. But that could happen. So it's a heady experience, I have to say. And again, so much of it is just watching you being certainly incredibly complimentary to your to the actors with whom we work, and it's a terrific cast. But you come in on a cloud. I mean, if you watch the movie Gone Are the Days, Ossie Davis's feet are planted squarely on the ground, and he's conjuring these images through the rhetoric and the use of his hands. He's basically turning every speech into a pulpit. But for you, you're treating him as, as almost as if he's using his entire body to convince people which is a very different thing. You know, the theater comes at a certain amount of sacrifice to those of us that are part of it. It's a sacrifice to your to your body and uh, time away from your family and all. And it's, it's certain none of us does the theater to get wealthy, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but th- that's what I come for. I, I really come for that full body experience. You know, Tommy Kale and I would talk about that with, with Burr. One of my early teachers in the arts would talk about, it really came from her, you know, Miss Maureen. She would talk about telling the story from your pinky toe to your hair follicles. That really, it was, it was just really about getting your whole, throwing your whole body into something uh, that you believed in. And, and, what it, and I, I found my most joyous experiences as a theater goer are when I see that. And so... Yeah, I'm trying to find pieces, trying to find my way. As an actor, I want to find my way into worlds and to pieces that ask that of me. But you don't walk 
onto the stage, you soar into it. Uh, there's an act of levitation that's taking place. And rather than building clouds around you, if we're talking about Ossie Davis, you actually come in on the clouds. For me, that's part of that, that sense of of contradiction in Pearly, this, this kind of optimism that sort of comes on top of the fact that he is conning people, but he's also, especially in this portrayal, if he, it's almost as if he says it, it will it will come true. And it's this fascinating sort of intersection for me, and I hate to go like this on you, so forgive me, between unbridled optimism and being a sociopath, but it's an astonishing thing to watch. <laughs> That's a, yes, you're right. That's so funny. There are some people that... <laughs> are going to bend the world, that that believe they can bend the world into being what they envision. And thank God for those people who never stop working, who see something before the rest of us. Mr. Davis was one of those people. I mean, there's a lot of Mr. Davis in Pearly. His children will tell you. He was a prophet, and we were, were lucky to have prophets walk among us every now and again. It's so interesting because this is material he like revisited. If you ever saw the version of Cotton Comes to Harlem that he did, which he wrote and directed, which turns those characters into archetypes and is about a preacher who wants to deliver his people, but does he really? And I was thinking about that as you were talking, just because in this staging of it, it's almost as if the play itself is sort of asking us, is Pearly on the level or not? And I'd never seen it done this way before because the musical doesn't even do that. If you see Pearly, it's about him finally being on the side of the angels. But the show sort of keeps all these plates spinning. And that's that's the fun of the staging too. But it's also the way you're playing it where you were talking about archetype and, 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 and what Billy does with Gitlow. But you could do that sort of thing too where you're letting the audience know you're the star and he is really a right-minded person, but you resist that temptation, if, if I put it in pearly terms. Part of my protest, I think, and my generation, uh, is that there is a space that we can demand for the fullness of our humanity, that we do not have to be perfect people. We are asking, in some cases demanding, that we be accepted in the fullness of who we are in the same way that we've historically been asked to accept the flaws, uh, you know, to accept our white brothers and sisters for all that they are. Certainly, they're not perfect people. And we have had to find our way to, to love and acceptance and making peace with those parts that are contradictory, the parts that are painful. Yeah, I have a deep desire. My marching orders in this chapter of my career is uh, truthful renderings of Black life, truthful renderings. We ain't perfect, but um, we're beautiful and we're worthy to occupy the space just as we are. Ain't none of them going to be perfect people, but they're beautiful. And they are a representation of the beauty of our audiences and the beauty of the people that um, created them. Thank you. My guest 
who will probably be adding to his mantle of awards is Leslie Odom Jr. He's once again in a smash. The show is really victorious, <laughs> a non-Confederate romp through the cotton patch. I can't thank you enough for doing this. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So the next time, bro. Thank you so much. Love doesn't Leslie Odom Jr. is one shy of the EGOT. He's received Tony, Emmy, and Grammy Awards for his work. He's also an author and is currently starring in one of the fall's biggest Broadway sensations, the revival of Ossie Davis's 1961 play, Pearly Victorious. Winners of all kinds of awards, they can be found at the archive at kcrw.com slash the treatment. Your listening is award enough for me. More to come. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. When they died, they left no instructions, just a legacy to protect. Death doesn't discriminate. The and the KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. Not much else going on this week, I guess. Anyway, my guest, television critic for the Los Angeles Times, Lorena Ali, was the first person I thought about when we got the news uh, recently of the passing of Suzanne Summers. And I thought because it's less than 50 years ago uh, about how women were treated in television. And with the exception of people like Mary Tyler Moore or Rhoda, uh, a handful of women stars and it just so happened every time more created the company that changed television other women in tv were treated like employees weren't that yeah i mean you know even worse though in a way i mean when you think about like women are paid on a national average it's not great i think it's like 80 cents to the dollar of men and in television it was worse um pay scale wise and then also if you had asked for any sort of fairness or equality with your male co-stars, as in Suzanne Summers' case, that could mean, all right, you're out. You're fired for actually speaking up and asking. You know, in her case, I guess it was about 30 cents on the dollar. He was getting, she's asking for $150,000 an episode and a piece of the profits, which is what he was getting. And I just remember, if you go back and research it, people were making the case that, well, he'd had kind of a career, but... I mean, as, as good as John Ritter was, he had sort of failed in a handful of movies and or hadn't become a movie star. And Suzanne Summers had been the big deal, uh, the mysterious blonde in American Graffiti, which had given her this kind of interesting pop culture cachet. And watching the show, certainly she's as integral to the chemistry of that show as John Ritter, isn't she? Definitely. You know, I, I grew up actually watching Three's Company and I should I admit that? I just did. But um, Chrissy, her character, 
was the one in school when we would talk about the show that we would talk about. She was the character that really stood out. And then Jack, who was John Ritter's character, he was funny. He was the jokester. But Chrissy had all the, you know, I hate to say this, the dumb blonde lines. That's what they put her in for. Um, But she took that role and she like made something of it. I think without her, that show would have not been the success that it was initially. I think so, too, just because there's so much more to it. One has shadows to use such a phrase in talking about this. But um, in, in terms of understanding what the character was, I mean, there was a cattiness in it. And and if it were just a dumb blonde, as I'm sure it was conceived, then it probably just would have gone out to pass pretty fast. It was a, a mid-season replacement and would have disappeared like many of them did. But there was something interesting that she did with it, I think. If you watch it, if you can never tell... If she was just sort of waiting people out, if there was some kind of cunning there that she wasn't giving vent to, you also got a chance to see, too, when she would do interviews, that that was clearly performance. And it's certainly this thing we talk about with actors. You see them talk, you go, they're not that character. But I would hear from friends who go, gosh, she's really not a dumb blonde. She's acting and doing an actually a fairly funny take on both on, on, on Marilyn Monroe and... Jane Mansfield, and, but bringing that for television and, and rescaling it. So I thought there's calculation in that performance. I agree. And I think, you know, she did bring, it was herself to that role, right? I mean, you know, at that time in Hollywood and television, um, as you said, you know, there just weren't a lot of roles that uh, for women, particularly quote unquote, pretty blonde women, as they would probably refer to them at that time, where they actually had brains, where they actually had a backstory. And even if she wasn't given that when she came into that role, she brought it to that role. And that sort of speaks to who she was off camera. Because when you see what she did within that whole situation that happened with CBS and that show, and then later what she did with her career, it's clear she wasn't going to let anybody mess with her. And she didn't. Again, going back to doing a little bit of research, actually going to the library uh, and just digging up. It's not even evolved enough to, to be called misogyny the way it was being reported. I mean, mm. nobody was on her side. And there is a, this, I wouldn't say implicit, but explicit, how dare she ask for the kind of thing that 15 years later, the cast of Friends made a compact to do, which is to say, we all stand together and we get parody. And even it seemed to have affected the show so much that in addition to destroying the show by the way she was taken out of it, uh, the cast didn't even speak to each other again for years. Right. Yeah, it caused that much of a rift. I think right until, you know, up until John Ritter's death, I mean, she spoke to him before his death. And I think it was just as long before she spoke with Joyce, who played Janet in the series. Back when she had asked for more money, and they said no. They offered her some kind of paltry, you know, raise, which was nothing um, in comparison. They sort of dealt with it by doing this ridiculous thing because she was still under contract where she would only appear in like the one minute closing tag of a scene um, in this handful of episodes. So it was kind of the way to wait out her contract, not really give her more money, make her suffer for asking for equal pay. And it was punishment. It was clearly punishment. And the idea that, you know, we're willing to tank this show to prove a point, like she's not going to get this over on us, that's, that speaks volumes. 
And I think, you know, when you're talking about friends, whatever it is, 15 years later, would that have happened if Suzanne Summers hadn't made the stand that she had on Three's Company? Maybe, but I think she definitely brought that to the fore. I think she definitely, and it was publicly brought to the fore. It wasn't some sort of, you know, little behind the scenes thing. It, it was a thing. And people knew that it happened. And I think that made all the difference. It's incredible because you think about that's also the days of the Three's Company of, of the Three Network world. It wasn't even the Fox around in those days. And it probably only kind of a couple of years after the bitter fighting. My father would be thrilled. I went to college to be able to talk about this. <laughs> Laverne and Shirley, well, they asked for raises. And they were, and the same kind of reporting was happening about those actors having the nerve to ask for more money. Yeah, and it's crazy because Laverne and Shirley, who was the show centered around? Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of hard to do that show without them. We talk about like these amazing women like Mary Tyler Moore or Kara Burnett, who were able to sort of guide their own careers, and they were so rare. It was just so rare and much more so it was the Suzanne Summers you know, situation that women found themselves in if they dare to ask for more. When we talk about friends and how things had changed, they had changed, but we're still definitely not there. And we weren't there at that point either. It was better. And I think because women like Suzanne Summers stood up and there was sort of a more, more of a, I don't know if I would say movement, but a collective understanding publicly that this was an issue uh, but it's still a problem. I mean, you know, women are still getting paid less than men. I mean, in, in Hollywood in particular, when you're talking about film, it's abysmal. But it's in front of the camera, behind the camera. And, you know, we talk about these great steps that have been made, which there have been, because there's a lot more narratives, you know, that are driven by women. There's a lot more shows that are run by women. But we're still so, so underpaid and far behind Thank God journalism isn't like that, Elvis. Boy, I, you know. <laughs> well, well, for, for women and people of color, you know, there's so many opportunities and we treat it so well, you know, uh, so, so so you're absolutely right. I'm glad you were able to pull me up short on this. But uh, you just find yourself thinking like, gosh, you, you think about the way the situation is reported in Sex in the City and pay around that and the battle. And, and that's still suddenly it goes from being this talk about the show to sort of pitting women against each other still, because that that becomes the, the easier way to report it. But I was even thinking when we were talking about Mary Tyler Moore or Carol Burnett, you always heard Grant Tinker and Jim Brooks mentioned with, yeah. with Mary Tyler Moore. So it wasn't like she was thought of as being the central figure in this or the only central figure. And as often as not, Joe Hamilton would come up uh, when Carol Burnett was being discussed. So it was really enormously brave of Suzanne Summers that thinks of it. I'm sure she felt like in some ways it was common sense. I do think she felt like it was common sense. I mean, from her actions and, you know, we sit here right now and say, of course, right. That's what's fair. But I mean, at that time, as a woman to not feel like, Oh, maybe I'm asking for too much. I don't want to make waves. That was the way of thinking. And it still is. That happens. You know, I mean, it's the way, that I think women have been conditioned to look at their their place in the workplace, particularly back then, if they even had a place in the workplace um, that wasn't getting coffee for, you know, the man. So I think, you know, it was 
forward thinking of her, although it was just simply fair thinking, right? But then I think, you know, as we move forward, like you look at a show like Roseanne or Murphy Brown, how fast things started to kind of turn whatever it was within a decade in how women were being considered at least on screen. You know, I can't speak to the pay for them. I don't, I can't pull that up right now. I don't know, but I'm assuming, you know, it was uh, better and more equitable than it had been for someone like Suzanne Summers on Three's Company. There was this period in the 90s where all these women who were running the center of these shows, and Murphy Brown is part of that, you know, they were all at some point, you heard somebody say, use the magic word, they were crazy. And yeah. because they, they dared to sort of take a stand. And, and we can certainly probably between us, like, come up with countless kinds of misbehaviors that weren't reported the same way when it was men acting that way. Oh, they're crazy. Or, you know, I just don't like them. They're not very likable. You know, they, they don't seem very nice. And people loved uh, Charlie Sheen because he wasn't likable, right? <laughs> because he's a rogue, because he acted horribly. Um, <laughs> to women, to women. <laughs> to women, exactly. Well, you know, clearly he was doing it. It was the right direction. It was coming from the right gender. So, you know, therefore it was celebrated. And, you know, when we're talking about Roseanne or Murphy Brown, but when you fast forward it to now, and you look at somebody like Pamela Adlon and Better Things, that is like the five steps beyond where we were at that point. It is sort of like, to me, that show is like a victory. It's like a victory. It it shows you kind of what was broken through with those earlier shows and also being, a, you know, a creative force behind it. I mean, I can't speak to her pay, but I'm assuming, you know, it's got to be better than, you know, what they were facing back in the 80s or 90s. I guess the point is, is that the pay equals the power, right? It's also they're they're tied together and also the agency. And that's all critical. And that's, you know, what gets us some of the great shows that we can see now, Black Lady Sketch Show, whatever it is. You know, those things happen because women fought decades ago to be respected and to have a fair and equal chance on screen and off screen. I should say it's the treatment. I'm talking to our old friend, Lorraine Ali, a television critic of Los Angeles Times. We're, this conversation was sparked by the recent passing of Suzanne Summers. And as you were saying that, Lorraine, if I'm still thinking too about two women who probably grew up in this and, and, and thought about this when they were shaping their show, and that's the example of Shonda Rhimes and Ellen Pompeo on Grey's mm-hmm. Anatomy, where it starts with being one kind of show it almost feels like one hates to use the phrase Trojan horse, but all the McDreamy stuff was actually a way to sort of slowly move the show into being about the way women handle these crises. Because it, it comes only a few years after Chicago Hope and ER, where women as often as not still nurses on those shows. I think Ellen Pompeo had asked for more money because, you know, the show was in fact named after her character. And <laughs> <laughs> Because she was being paid less, I believe, than her love interest, who was Patrick Dempsey. And it was like, nope, nope. So you think of someone like Shonda Rhimes. And when she was coming up immersed in television, she was watching all these very various women, you know, actors that we're talking about. And, you know, what she was able to develop as a creator is kind of astounding. You know, if you're looking at Grey's Anatomy and then all the way up to Bridgerton. I mean, those are shows where women are the central figures. They drive the narrative. 
and they don't exist in those narratives because of men. It's funny, too, because I guess it's that, you know, of, of it all, that there seems to be no institutional memory at, at ABC because it was ABC where the Three's company situation occurred and ABC again where Grey's Anatomy. You think, well, doesn't anybody learn anything? Because I think eventually even one of the, um, the executives of ABC, of course, years later came out and said that everything that Suzanne Summers just said was true, that she was being penalized, that they were saying, and, and in fact, that... So what if it if it kills the show? She needs to be made an example of. And see how well that worked, right? She was made the example of. And what did it do? It showed other women, oh, wait, I can actually ask for what I'm worth. Yeah, there'll, maybe there'll be a punishment. But in the end, Suzanne Summers came up making millions more than her co-stars who kind of faded into oblivion. But yeah, the institutional memory, you were centering this in television, of course, and in Hollywood. But, you know, this is a microcosm of the larger problem. I mean, we give, you know, on an institutional level, lip service to gender pay equality, gender equality in the workplace. And it all sounds good. But when you're on the ground and seeing how this works, you know, it is a constant fight. It's a constant fight. And to see it played out in television and shows that we watch behind the scenes with actors that we like. I think it just shows like these people who are stars, these people who are creators that we think probably have so much power or at least live such, you know, privileged lives that are different than ours. They're, they're struggling with the same things, you know, women, people of color, this is the same problem in some instances worse which I don't know what that says. I mean, I guess it says this fantasy lands that we like in television and film where there's some really harsh realities of things that we all deal with in our everyday life in the workplace. Well, I'm going to give you the, let you have the last word because I couldn't think of a better way to end this conversation. I can't thank you enough. My guest is Lorraine Ali. She's a television critic at the Los Angeles Times and a friend of the show. And I'm thrilled she took the time to talk about what I think is a really important topic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lorraine Ali is a television critic at the Los Angeles Times. She's also covered pop culture for a number of other publications. The treat from a writer you may know best as an actor, Owen Wilson, on a poet he found in the bookstore. Other found treats at kcrw.com slash the treat. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. Having Owen Wilson do the show was a treat. He chose to do the treat, a writer who expanded his world as a reader. And this was recorded before the SAG after strike. Hi, I'm Owen Wilson, and this is the treat. The thing that I was thinking that I would pick today is this poet, Jim Moore. 
The way that I came across him, I was in a bookstore in Atlanta and a lady, you know, asked me, do do you like books on poetry? And I said, yes, of course. Who's going to say no? I don't like poetry, even though I don't think I've ever bought from a bookstore a book of poetry. But she said, well, you might like this. And almost to be kind of polite, I said, okay, okay, yeah, let, let me get this. And I was surprised when I opened it and read one that I instantly kind of understood it and responded to it. Because I find sometimes with poetry that it's too abstract or I can't quite figure it out. And with this, I could really understand it. And there was just some, you know, so many great poems in his books and and I've since gotten a lot more. You know, some of it doesn't even seem like, you know, poetry, you know, where it's kind of rhyming, you know, the way a Robert Frost, whose woodsies are, I think I know. It's not necessarily that, even though that's a great one. It's something different, but it's they're really beautiful and they're almost, to me, like little prayers. I said last night, in a few seconds before I fell asleep, you do realize, don't you, everything is falling apart. You said, okay, I'll try to keep that in mind. And now it is starting to be... But the one that I really found really moving is he, I guess, is in Italy, and he's looking at a famous painting by Giotto, who did one of St. Francis. You know, before he's become St. Francis, he's, you know, he's from a wealthy family, and he's renouncing all that. And to show how serious he is, he's taking off his clothes. He's naked, and there's a hand kind of reaching down from the heavens. And in Jim Moore's poem, he talks not about Francis, but about the father of Francis, who's there in the painting. And you can see the the love and the suffering, because imagine if you have your son who's taking off all his clothes and saying that he's sort of renouncing everything and choosing this life of poverty. And it was such a beautiful idea that I just kind of, you know, thought about my own relationship with my dad, where, you know, we certainly kind of my brothers and I put him through the ringer. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Everybody knows who Francis became. He's St. Francis of Assisi. But the idea that before he's become that, the human moment of what would it feel like I just thought was a great, you know, take that Jim Moore had on it that I, you know, wouldn't have occurred to me until he pointed it out. And when he did, it was very beautiful and and I just loved it. As long as I'm a ghost, you can't see. Oscar nominee and Marvel Universe figure Owen Wilson on the mind-expanding poetry of Jim Moore past treats such as Abraham Josephine Reisman on a writer whose work never lost its currency at kcrw.com slash the treat. Award-winning creative figures and the forces of ideas that shape their sensibilities. It's the treat. This show was edited and produced by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist. And we had help from Anna Buss and Laura Kandarajan. Life, just one big run on sentence. To better days, everyone, I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. Just too hard to take. 
walk away like a movie star who gets burned in a three-way street. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.